All right, I'm going to get right into it. <clears throat> let, me, let me start with a question. How many of you are a believer in Jesus Christ today because someone faithfully shared the gospel with you? Can I see a show of hands? How many, how many are here and somebody was faithful to do that in your life? See, that same, same with me. Um, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to be born into a Christian family raised by God-loving parents uh, who, who know Jesus. And, and so both my mom and my dad, they poured into me growing up. Um, and uh, my father especially was a very strong influence. And I can't remember the statistic off of my head, but st- studies show that when the dad comes to know uh, Jesus as, as his Lord and Savior, it's an overwhelming percentage of the children that make the commitment to follow Jesus themselves. Um, but uh, that, was, that was me. I was, uh, spiritually speaking, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had very godly parents. But, you know, growing up, I had other people who were very faithful to pour into my life. Brenda and I, we were first married. Uh, we, we really weren't walking with the Lord, but we kind of thought, well, gosh, now that we're married um, and starting a family, we, we probably should get back to church and, and all. And um, like so many people, I had sort of walked away from the Lord in adulthood and um, in my teens and, and, and so on. And, and so we started going to a church and, and uh, a guy named Bob Bannister was faithful to come over to our house after we had gone to church for the very first time. And, and I'll, I'll admit it was a little awkward to have what I saw as an old man, and I look back on it, he's probably younger than I am now, but <clears throat> this guy showing up at our house. But, you know, it, it felt good. We were really grateful for this guy faithfully coming over and encouraging us in the Lord. Uh, as, you know, the years went by, I'd had other people who would pour into my life. Uh, Dave Shepherdson, a good friend of mine, who pastors Calvary Chapel Nuevo, and he and I, in time, would, would start uh, what's now Revival Christian Fellowship together as a Bible study in my home. But leading up to that, Dave was so faithful to, to share Jesus with me and to let his light shine and to encourage me. And what we're going to look at today really is, is that burden, that mandate that we all carry. You know, we, uh, we, we finished out the Gospel of Luke uh, a couple of weeks ago. And in uh, Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. He appeared to them after his resurrection. He's explaining everything to them. And he continues and he said uh, that this is what Jesus should do, rise from the dead of the third day. And verse 47, that repentance and remissions of sins should be, that's the operative phrase, should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you, he says to his disciples, are witnesses of these things. And we are all witnesses of what Jesus can and will do in the life of a believer. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He says, you're witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father. He's talking about the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry, wait, in the city of Jerusalem until you are, on, you, you are endued with power from on high. This is the Lord's encouragement to these disciples. Look, you've got a witness. You've got a testimony. And, and your job now is to go share that testimony. And then Luke, after he finishes the Gospel of Luke, the next book that he writes is the book of Acts, which is is the Acts of the Apostles. It is them taking the baton from the Lord Jesus Christ and living out their faith. 
And we see Jesus' final words there to them, recorded in Acts 1.8. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We see a spiritual principle here. That, that this witness, this testimony, this faithfulness on their part, it begins locally and then it moves globally. It begins locally and then it moves globally. We see this in our own lives and we see this in the life of the church. In our own lives, somebody was faithful to share the love of Jesus with you. They were faithful to let their light shine in your life, to to give to you the exhortation and the encouragement that Jesus is good, that there is a Father in heaven who loves us and loves us so much that he gave his son to pay the penalty for our sin. And everybody is acutely aware of their sin, whether they've confessed Christ as Savior or not. We know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world. And Jesus said one of the ways that he's at work in the world is that he convicts of sin. And there are the guilty consciences that we have. And if there are no absolute right or wrong, then why is it that we have guilt, that we have shame, that we have regrets? And the reason is, is because we have sin. And God is, is there, and, and we are convicted in our sin, but the gospel message is that we don't have to carry that guilt and shame. We don't have to live in regret, that we can have all of those things that are in our life that we're ashamed of, that we regret, that, that are painful, or things that have been done to us, and that there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that he's paid the penalty for all of that. And we can be forgiven, and we can be cleansed, and we can be made right with God, forgiven. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And we have experienced this to where we had locally somebody share with us. And when we come to know the Lord, then our mission starts as Christians. We are called to live missional lives. And so the mission starts as we come to know the Lord and then we just let our light shine. And what happens then is that it grows. Just as Jesus told the disciples, you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we read through the book of Acts and we see how the message spreads, how people just share their lives and share their testimonies and others come to know the Lord. And then people take that and they go out. And we as a church, we're experiencing that. There's just, you know, the three missions trips that we even announced this morning, the opportunity to go into other countries and to let our light shine. And this here is the heart of God. It's who we're called to be. It's what we are called to do. And, you know, the reason I feel burdened to talk about this, we're going to start 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in a couple of weeks. Um, But but as we left off in Luke with this mandate, and then as I invited Pastor Jim to preach for me, and didn't Jim do a wonderful job last week? Oh, my gosh. Just a phenomenal job. I love that man. He's the sweetest man and, and just loves Jesus and it oozes out of him. And, and he shared his testimony with us at first Wednesday of, uh, a couple of months ago. And I, I went up to him afterwards. I said, Jim, your testimony is so powerful. I would encourage you the next time you teach for me, pray about preaching a message that's just woven entirely around your testimony and what, what God has done. And I always let our pastors just 
let the Spirit lead when, when, when I'm away and they're going to teach and just, hey, yeah, however the Lord leads, that's what you preach on. Um, and, um, and that one time that Darius taught through the Book of Mormon was kind of awkward, but um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I just, you know, and, and so I was so encouraged when Jim did that this last weekend. And I thought, you know what? That's a theme. That's a thread. That's a work that God is doing right now. It's a word that he has for us. We left off in Luke, encouraging the power of testimony. Pastor Jim last week, talking and sharing his testimony and, and sharing just, just all the things that he'd been through. And so what I want to focus in on today, here in the Sermon on the Mount, out of Matthew's Gospel, I want to focus on Jesus' words to the church. Because if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he starts off talking about the blessings that we have as God's children But then he segues to talk about the business that we should be about. And we pick it up in verse 13 of of, uh, Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus is talking about the business that we should be about. Here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He continues. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Guys, what we see here in these verses, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is focusing on the business that we should be about, we see the Father's heart for the lost. We see the Father's heart for the lost. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's Luke chapter 19, verse 10. That's what he came to do. Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the Father's heart, to rescue, to redeem, to seek, and to save. And in Mark chapter 16, in Luke chapter 14, in Luke chapter 24, in Matthew chapter 28, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says that we, you and me, we are to go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. And here in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying the exact same thing. He's saying the exact same thing. And he starts off, he says, you're the salt of the earth. Right? And, and if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's, it's then uh, good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt does several things. Uh, salt creates a thirst. And, and part of you living out your Christian life, your Christian testimony, letting your light shine, is that your life is to create a thirst in someone. People need to be able to look at your life to see how you handle trials, to see how you handle hardships, to see how you live by faith, to see how you treat your wife, to see how you treat your husband, to see how you parent your children. And it should create a thirst in them. What are you doing with your kids? Man, I want to know. I remember Brenda, years ago, she was on the set with Scotty, and she had some director come up to her. It was a, it was a commercial, and there was a, a zoo of kids uh, on this set, and he comes up to her, and he says, there's something different about your kid. What is it? What are you doing with your kid that's different? Brenda's like, you really want to know? He's like, yeah, I really want to know. She's like, 
we trained him, raised him up to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And she began to share, and he's doing, he just, okay, you know, thank you. But she created a thirst, right? Something else salt does, salt was primarily in these days used as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have vacuum sealing, packaging, that kind of stuff. And so whenever, you know, they would butcher an animal and they would use the meat, whatever they didn't consume right away had to be preserved. And the way that they would preserve it was with salt. They would salt the meat. And salt killed the surface bacteria and it had a preserving effect. And likewise, Jesus says here to his disciples that you, with Christ in you, you are the preserving effect in the community, in the world. And we see this, that wherever the Christian voice goes out and has a strong witness, there is a preserving effect. But wherever the Christian voice begins to wane, we see that the society begins to deteriorate and it begins to implode. One of the things that we've been so horrified to look at lately is what's been going on in the public schools. And the policies that have been passed, the, the, the curriculums that are being adopted, the agenda that's being pushed and forced upon our kids. We're seeing radical laws in the state of California, which, which are basically taking away parental rights and, and making the state the ward of our children and, and really um, allowing them to indoctrinate our kids and really even to, in some cases, take our kids away from us. All of these things towards ungodly principles. And the fact of the matter is, the Christian voice, well, it's been waning in our public schools since the 60s. And so what happens is society begins to deteriorate and implode. And so Jesus says in verse 14, look, or in 13, look, you're the salt of the earth. He says in verse 14, you're the light of the world. He says, a city that's set on a hill, it can't be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it up on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. And he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Now notice that Jesus never said that we are to become salt or that we are to become light. He simply said that we are. You are by virtue of the fact that you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've invited him to be Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit has come to take residence in your life, you are salt and light. And by your obedience or your disobedience to God, you either fulfill that or you fail that. And this is a day-to-day thing, isn't it? Right, Because the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh and you've got good days and you've got bad days. I talk about how you're a witness to the world and how you raise your kids and some of you are thinking, man, I've had some really bad days right now. You know, uh, Just be happy they're still breathing right now. <laughs> you know? And I get it. But we have those days where we fulfill and we're, we're salt and we're light and we have days where, where we fail that. But listen, understand, Jesus said that's who you are as a Christian. And and it is simultaneously a very great honor, as well it's a very great responsibility. It's a great honor because the light of the world is the title that Jesus took upon himself, right? And when he says, you're the light of the world, that's a title that is his. So that's a huge honor, right? Jesus, speaking in John's gospel, spoke to his disciples and he said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In the very next chapter, John 9, 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
And so his conference of his own title upon us is a great honor. And it represents, you're the light of the world. Why? Because Jesus is in you. And as long as he is in the world, then his light shines through you and through me. And it's supposed to. But listen, it's also great responsibility. It is a great responsibility. Here's why. Because when we act as Jesus acted, when we live out by faith and let Jesus shine through us, what are we doing? We're acting as his ambassadors, his ambassadors. Now, the dictionary says that an ambassador is an official envoy, that it is the resident representative of a kingdom. In other words, because you represent the ruler of that kingdom, right, then you are to be his representative. You're not supposed to be your own representative. We don't have the authority to, to, to function as being our own representatives, you know, a U.S. ambassador goes to a foreign country. He doesn't unilaterally get to go there and say, hey, you know, this is what I think and this is my policies and this is, you know, my agenda. No, why? Because he's a resident representative of another, of a, of a, of a nation. And he has to submit himself to the policies and to the, to, to the dictates of those who are in authority and who have placed him in that position of being a representative. It's the same thing for you and me. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. That is the business that we are supposed to be about. Let me ask you a question. How's business? How's business? How are you either fulfilling that or failing that? I want you to think right now about the people that God has placed in your life, the people that are in your circles of influence. I want to think, you to think about your neighbors. I want you to think about your friends. I want you to think about your family. I want you to think about uh, those people in your workplace. See, uh, you know, the pastors of this church, the leaders of this church, we're, we're not in your workplace. We're not in your neighborhood or, or whatever the case may be. God's placed people in your life, wanting, directing, mandating that we should be representatives of him. This is how we're to live out our life. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter five. He said, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, a key principle in this issue of being salt and being light is the word distinction. There has to be a distinction between how you live and the world in which you're living. See, because Jesus says salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying. And if our Christianity is also rotting and decaying, then it's not going to be any good for the people who we are called to be salt to, to create a thirst in and to have a purifying effect upon. Jesus says that light is needed because the world is in darkness. And if our life imitates the darkness, listen, we have nothing to show to the world. It always breaks my heart when I see various churches that will compromise the message of the gospel in the name of, you know, being, reaching people in their community. And I'm like, look, if you, if you compromise the gospel, then what you've done is you've entered into darkness. You have no light to shine. And so it's like, well, wait a minute, I don't, aren't I supposed, I want to connect with these people, not in their sin, not in their darkness. And there's a way that you can connect with people without compromise. This is what we are called to. 
So being the light of the world means that we're not only light receivers, it means that we are light givers. In other words, we can't just live for ourselves. We have to have a genuine concern for other people. A genuine concern. Let me illustrate it this way. Years ago, I I had a dog, and his name was Bentley. And Bentley was a Cavalier King Charles. If you're familiar with the breed, it's kind of like the Lady and the Tramp dog, only they're small. And Bentley was the sweetest dog in the world. Uh, He would be content to just, you know, be in your lap the whole time. He would climb up on our bed at night. He would climb under the covers. He'd go to sleep, and then he'd get hot, and he'd come out and flop down. But he never wanted to be away from us. He would jump up on my lap when I'd sit on the couch, and then he would climb up my chest. He'd put one paw on either side of my shoulder, and he'd just lay his head right into my cheek, you know. I didn't want this dog. Brenda and the kids begged me for three hours, and that's no exaggeration. Please, please. I'm like, I don't want this dog. And I finally said, okay, Brenda, it's your dog, okay? You're going to get up with it. You're going to potty train it. You're going to take care of it. And guess what happened? He became my dog. Man, just, I mean, just the sweetest thing in the world. Now, Zach wasn't a huge fan of Bentley, my son-in-law, Zach. He didn't hate him or anything. He wasn't a you know, dog hater, but he just, you know, he, he, he wasn't a fan. He, he, he just wasn't. Well, one day we had a bunch of people over at our house and we lived, you know, up uh, above a creek and there were always coyotes out there every night, you know. Um, they'd wake us up with their howling and we had all these people over at our house. Somebody left the front door open and all of a sudden, uh-oh, Bentley's gone. And it is, it is night. It's probably 10 o'clock at night. I'm thinking that dog ain't gonna last an hour. So I'm out desperately looking for this dog, right? Brenda's out. We're on the cell phones. Do you see him? No, I don't see him. So we're searching frantically for Bentley. And I ended up calling Zach because he'd left my house, you know, a little while before that. He and Caitlin were driving home. And I called Zach. I said, would you please come over and help me find my dog? Well, Zach didn't really care so much, but you know what he did? He came over. He found my dog. He found him, brought him back to me. Now, I want you to keep that picture in your mind. God's heart for the lost. He's desperate for those that are lost. He's desperate for those that are dying. He's desperate to reach those that are going to hell. And you know what? He's called you. And he said, would you please be salt? Would you please be light? Because they're precious to me. This is the idea. This is the mandate. And listen, I want you to understand, as we do this, we're simply joining Jesus in the work that he's already done. Tim Keller said this. He said, God does not merely send the church in mission. By the way, the church is you and me individually. It's not just all of us together corporately. God does not merely send the church in mission. God already is in mission and the church must join him. This also means that the church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. Ed Stetzer said this, he said, missional living is rooted in the triune sending God. The fact that God is a sender is connected with the very essence of the church. God is a sender. It's been said that God had one son and he was a missionary. This is God's heart. And we see this reflected in John chapter 20. Jesus says to his disciples, peace to you as the father has sent me, that's his missional commission, I also send you. That's your missional commission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
And this, these two verses in John 20, we see there the picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, acting together as senders. The Father sent and empowered Jesus missionally, and Jesus now has sent you and me and empowered you and me missionally. Now understand, this is fundamental to who God is. He is a missional God. And so when we talk about missional living, and I'm talking about you, missional living, it's not optional for us, it's not incidental. In other words, we can't participate in Christ without also participating in his mission to the world. Now this next point's important, I'll put it on the screen for you. Listen, missional living doesn't just happen by chance, it happens by, what's the word? Intention, intention. There has to be an intentionality to the way that you and I live missionally, right? And so that means that we have to put some thought into it. We have to put some effort into it. I saw somebody, you know, we're coming up on the holidays and somebody had posted on social media that uh, for Thanksgiving, they were gonna make a point of talking about politics so they wouldn't have to go back for Christmas. That they wouldn't be invited, right? And I know it can be hard. Right? You have unsaved family, and sometimes those, those gatherings can be difficult. But listen, if you, if you take an intentional approach and understand, okay, I'm gonna, the holidays are coming up, I'm going to have an interaction with my family, and you start praying right now, God, how can I be salt and light to my family? And I realize oftentimes a prophet's without honor in his hometown. But Lord, how can I be salt? How can I be light to them? It's not optional, it has to happen by, an in, by intention. And Jesus illustrates this intentional principle by comparing us to a lampstand. And he says, just as lamps are placed high so their light can be more effective, so also we have to look for ways to let our light shine in greater ways and in broader ways. How can I let my light shine like a city that is set on a hill? Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are, nor even see us at all, but that they may see grace in us and God in us, and that would cause them to cry, what a father these people must have. And then he says this, is this not the first time in the New Testament that God is called our father? He's referring to verse 16 in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the first time in the New Testament that God, the Father, is called our Father, right? And he says, is this not the first time that he's called our Father? Is it not significant that the first time that it peeps out should be when men are seeing the good works of his children? This is the idea. This is the attitude. And so biblically, guys, what we see is that God the Father enacted missional living, right? Jesus Christ embodied missional living. The Holy Spirit empowers missional living. And God's children now have the duty to exercise missional living. And this brings me to my final point. Guys, culture is the context in which you are going to execute missional living. Culture, your culture, the, the community that you are in. And what I mean by that is that missional living doesn't happen inside the church. Guys, it happens outside the church. See, coming together as a church, 
on Sunday, in a home Bible study, in the context of where we gather together for fellowship, is critically important. The Bible says that we are not to neglect this gathering together of the saints. Very important. But what we have to avoid against is that we isolate ourselves from the world and that we live in a Christian bubble. We have to be mindful that our whole mission here, no pun intended, is that we would come to know the Lord and that we would serve one another in fellowship, but that we would then leave here and we would go out of the driveway and we would understand you are now entering the mission field. I remember years ago, I met this gal, and she was talking to my pastor at the time, and he says, uh, what, do you, what do you do for a living? And she said, oh, I'm a missionary. He said, really, where? She said, Target. <laughs> she worked there, but she saw her life as a mission. This is the attitude. She gets it, right? Missional living happens outside the church. And listen, engaging culture is the key component to being missional Christians, engaging culture, right? Now, when we talk about engaging culture, I'm not talking about the Christian bubble, and conversely, I'm not talking about compromise. I'm not talking about, oh, you know, I'm going to go have some beers with with some people so that they know that I'm normal. I I had a friend who decided that he was going to go uh, be missional to the guys that he grew up with, who he used to hang out with in high school. And it wasn't too many years removed from, from him being out of high school, but he thought, I'll go, about, I'll go hang with these guys. They're going out partying. I'm going to go hang with them, and I, I'm going to just let my light shine. And he was wearing a shirt that said, expect a miracle. And he said, by the end of the night, I was the one that needed the miracle because I compromised, you know? And he fell into just, and what did he try to do? He tried to identify with them by, oh, you know what? I'll have some beers with them. I'll just show them I'm normal. And one led to two, two led to four. And before you know it, he'd blown his witness. See, so it's not about compromise. It's about being salt and light. And it's about letting your light shine without compromise. Now, Living in relationship of peop- with people in your circle of influence is what I'm talking about. And, and that means that, you know, you're going to take time to get to know your neighbors. You're going to, and I just ask you a question, do you know your neighbors? Have you ever taken the time to get to know? So often, you know, we live in Southern California, hit the garage door opener, I drive out, I come home, I close the garage door opener. You know, I might say hi to somebody or whatever, but like, do I remember their names or whatever? And it's taking the time to get to know people. Even, you know, you don't, you don't have to agree with someone to care about someone. You don't have to share the same life philosophy, the same faith or anything to, to say, I want to get to know somebody. Because here's the deal. Um, when we talk about being salt and light, what I'm not talking about is being the God squad. You know, you show up and you hit somebody over the head with your Bible and you start, you know, forcing Bible verses down their, down their, their, their gullet. You know, it's not, there's, there's, because here's the thing. You guys are all familiar with the saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And so it's about creating a relationship with somebody and getting to know their needs and their desires and their hopes and their dreams and their fears, 
right? And, and we see this in Acts chapter 2. When the church is born and we see these, the, these Christians, they're in fellowship together and they're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers and God is adding daily to the church such as should be saved. And that section of chapter 2 really ends with that saying that God's adding daily and he precedes it by saying that they've given favor with all the people. See, what happened, what was going on is that these Christians had found true community. They had found forgiveness. They'd found Jesus. He transformed their life and they were creating a thirst. The other people that were looking in saying, I want what you've got. I want what you've got. Now, we do have to contend for the faith. When I talk about not being the God squad and beating people over the head with the Bible and all this stuff, that's, that's true. But conversely, we do have to contend for the faith. Right, Jude 1.3 says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so what that means is that we stay faithful to Jesus. It means we don't compromise his message. And it means that as we have opportunity, we look for ways that we can witness, ways that we can engage culture, ways that we can share our faith with the people who we come in contact with. When I was at the fire department, I, I was there and I was working with a bunch of guys. Many of them didn't know the Lord. And, and I tried to maintain my witness. And I took a lot of jabbing. I took a lot of ridicule, you know, for my faith. Uh, you know, the guys at, at night, you know, they'd sit in the day room, maybe watching TV. And, and oftentimes they'd watch stuff that wasn't edifying, wasn't good for me to be a part of. And I would go into the other room. I'd go into the front office and I, I, I'd read my Bible or I'd do something else, read a book or whatever. And... Um, you know, sometimes they hassled me, but you know what? Inevitably, and this happened on, on more than a dozen occasions, somebody had come wandering out into that front office, and I kind of felt like Lucy and Charlie Brown, you know, the doctor is in, you know, kind of thing. Because inevitably, they, when they came out there, I knew they were, they were, there was a thirst. Hey, I'm going through something hard. Can I get some advice? Can I get some counsel? Can I get some prayer? Man, I'm telling you, this will happen in your life. You will hear people say, I want what you've got. What is it that you've got? And we have to be prepared to be able to tell people, look, I'll tell you what I have. What I have is Jesus. But listen, apart from engaging our culture relationally, then if you're just contending for the faith by being a God squad Christian, beating people over the head with, with do's and don'ts and, and what the Bible has to say, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Engaging culture is often referred to as contextualization, right? And you contextualize the gospel and you're using what the apostle Paul called the means. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He's not talking about going out and having beers with people. He goes on, he goes, now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. I want you to know the Lord. I want your life to change. And so, so I do everything I can so that I can live in community and contextualize the gospel. The ideal of contextualization is simply this. It's that, and pay attention, it's that we show people how the gospel is relevant to their actual lives. Because the gospel is relevant to a person's actual life. Now, a couple things about that. Number one, it stands to reason if I'm going to show somebody how the gospel is relevant to their life, then I'm going to have to know a little bit about their life, right? 
I'm going to have to take the time to get to know them. I'm going to have to earn their trust. I'm going to have to have established some sort of a relationship where I, can, where I can know them and love them and encourage them without compromise, right? And then I have to show them how the gospel is relevant. Notice I didn't say that we make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant to them. We just have to show them how it's relevant. Let me give you an example of this. Pastor Jim, in his testimony last week, he was sharing how he was abused as a child. And and here's what sadly we know as pastors. I've been a pastor almost 30 years. Lots of people in the church have been abused. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, statistically 36% of women and 29% of men have been sexually or physically abused in their lifetime. On average, they say 24 people a minute are either victims of rape, assault, or some form of abuse. That's an astronomical number. Now, tragically, this is the age we live in. Many of you have horrid experiences in this. Sexual abuse, violent assault, rape, molestation, you name it. But listen, maybe in your circle of influence... You have a neighbor or a friend or a coworker who themselves have been a victim. How is the gospel relevant to them? Here's how. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, was himself assaulted, he was abused, he was beaten, and he was murdered. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings that we do and yet he did not sin. See, here's the good news. The good news for victims in our day is that we worship a God who himself identifies not only with suffering but with their suffering because he himself has gone through it. You see, not only does he identify with them, the Bible teaches that God in Christ covers their shames, cleanses their sin, makes them clean, makes them righteous in his sight, that he gives them a new name and he gives them a new identity. Let me put this on the screen, it's this important. No longer are people defined (coughs) by what their abusers did to them, but they're identified by what Jesus did for them and through his own abuse on the cross. Guys, that's contextualization. And so when you have somebody who's been abused, if you've been through it, you can encourage them, listen, this is the God who I worship and I love because he's been through all of these things. And I don't have to be identified by all these things, by what this person has done to me. I'm not, that's not my identity. My identity is in Christ for what he's done for me. And here's why. That's the contextualization of the gospel. There's no other religion or philosophy in this world that offers a God like that. And you have him, and you know him, and his light is in you. And you can be that salt, and you can be that light. And you can let your light so shine that they may see your good works, Jesus says, and glorify your Father in heaven. That word glorify, it means to extol or to praise. The attitude, the idea, is you live a life of faith in such a way that extols Jesus. It gives him praise. And Jesus says this happens through missional living, by being salt and light in a world that's desperate for light. That's our job. 
These were Jesus' last words. I shared them at the beginning of our sermon. I share it now at the end. Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen, it starts locally and it moves globally. Just being faithful. Three questions as we close. Question number one. How did people share the gospel with you before you were saved? I want you to take a walk with that thought. How, how did people share the gospel with you before you were saved? And, and what about their witness got through to you? And, and what can you learn from those experiences? Maybe, you know, you had some God squad type people that beat you over the head and that didn't work. And you go, okay, what can I learn from that? Well, I'm not going to do that, right? Second question, how can you intentionally shine the light of Jesus to those around you? I pray today as we close, <clears throat> partaking of communion and, and prayer and just seeking the Lord, that you would ask that, Lord, how can I be more intentional about living out my faith? Third question, final question, what's your testimony? How can you share that with others? How can you share your testimony? And we've all got one. Everyone in here, you all have a testimony, and it's your unique testimony. And we're called to be witnesses. That's just sharing your testimony. I think it's a good idea to get it in your mind, to work through. Yeah, I think everybody should have a five-minute testimony and everybody should have like a two- or three-minute testimony, you know, and maybe even a 30-second elevator testimony for somebody, you know, <laughs> just having thought through it, you know, because, look, at the end of the day, there's a lot of Bentleys running out there that are precious to God and the coyotes are just waiting to eat them up. <laughs>